Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, Jarrett Murphy from City Limits will talk to New York City's public advocate, Letitia James. And this weekend, go fly a kite at Brooklyn Bridge Park. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle. Ashley's got the day off. It's May Day. Workers unite. What are we to make of this day? Originally established as a day to demand better working conditions, shorter work days, and a freedom to strike, co-opted by communist regimes, shunned by the U.S. as a day of Soviet propaganda during the Cold War, and since revived here as workers continue to suffer under the yoke of money-hungry capitalists who care more about bottom lines than the well-being of employees. And now, the first May Day since the Republican tax cut went into effect, with its trickle-down delusion. But now there might be a hint of honesty coming from that party from none other than Senator Marco Rubio, once considered an heir to Ronald Reagan, who might be turning in his grave if he hasn't already been turning in his grave for the past dozen months. He fessed up to what many have been saying all along, that the tax plan has done little for American workers. Corporations, yes, with the permanent tax cut to corporate tax rates from 35% to 21%. Workers, no. With individual tax cuts expiring in seven years and the limits to certain deductions. Well, this shouldn't come as a total surprise. Rubio had misgivings before he voted yay, saying the plan went too far to help corporations. But now that it's a fait accompli, he can rail all he wants. But what's he gonna do about it? Run against small digits Don in 2020? We shall see. Coming up, Jared will be speaking with Letitia James, the New York City public advocate. And then we'll bring you a conversation Ashley had with one of the shepherds behind the restoration of Brooklyn Bridge Waterfront. Stay tuned. By all accounts, the Office of Public Advocate is unique to New York City. It's a mix of ombudsperson, investigator, legislator, and emergency mayor, and it's supposed to be a check on the power of City Hall. Mainly, it's a role shaped by the person playing it, and since 2014, that person has been Brooklyn's own Letitia James. Recently, her role has been as an ally of the governor in public housing, a supporter of the legalization of marijuana, and an advocate for better child care for the kids of city employees. Madam Public Advocate, welcome to 112BK. Thanks Thank so much Thank you so for much. Coming. How are you doing, Jack? I'm doing well. Doing very well. Thanks for coming. Thank you. So, marijuana. Folks yes. have been talking about legalizing it for decades, it seems. Um, until recently, you were not publicly supportive of that position. Mm -hmm. Now you are. What, what changed? So I was analyzing all of the data uh, from the nine states that currently have legalized marijuana, and I wanted to look at the impacts. I was concerned about a number of issues. But I also recognize that the war on drugs, unfortunately, has been really a war on poor people, and prim primarily a war on people of color. And I also recognize that 80 percent of the arrests in New York State for low levels of possession of marijuana have been people of color, men who are black and or Latino. And so I'm looking at this through the lens of um, a social justice activist and someone who is obviously concerned about revenues in the state of New York. And I also know that as we move forward um, uh, with the governor of the state of New York analyzing and looking at the data, we've got to get this right. We've got to make sure that the revenues that are generated from the legalization of marijuana are invested in communities that have been devastated by the drug war. Um, and those communities, unfortunately, that where uh, they have not received their fair share of funding. In addition to that, we've got to make sure that the businesses, the dispensaries um, that are open, that there's not artificial barriers that prevent uh, women and pe people of color from owning and operating a dispensary. And last but not least, we have to look at the whole issue of those individuals who were uh, formerly incarcerated and formerly convicted for low levels of marijuana, making sure that we conceal and or expunge their criminal records. How likely is it 
that we'll see legalization in this state in the next three to five years, do you think? Well, I do know that um, in New Jersey, how they're looking at uh, legalizing, and I spoke to the governor of New Jersey who was just recently elected, and he indicates to me that in New Jersey, in all likelihood, it will be the law of the land in New Jersey by the end of the year, and I'm hoping that in New York State we can do the same. But I do know that Governor Cuomo wants to be deliberate, wants to do a um, um, a comprehensive um, analysis of all of the data of all of the states that have currently passed it. And um, uh, I think, uh, obviously, I support him in his initiative. Um, and uh, there are so many aspects uh, to the legalization of marijuana, and it's very, very complicated. We currently have in New York State, um, we've legalized medical marijuana. Um, and I just recently uh, cut the ribbon on a medical dispensary on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. Uh, and uh, it was really interesting to learn all about the topical um, lotions and uh, the applications and the fact that it's not your your mother's marijuana. <laughs> it, I hope so. My mom would miss it if someone <laughs> took her marijuana. It's, it's, it's totally different. <laughs> you know, cigarettes are legal but bad for you. Alcohol is legal but obviously causes all kinds yeah. of problems. Uh, if marijuana is legal and it ends up that more people use it, will that be a good thing? I don't know if necessarily more people will use it. I have not smoked marijuana. Um, and I'm looking at this, again, f through the lens of uh, reforming our criminal justice system. The reality is I'm a defense attorney, and I've represented countless number of young individuals in the criminal justice system who are often arrested for low levels of marijuana. They spent—they stay in jail one night, and then usually they get, they get released the next day. And those who are convicted, unfortunately, are prohibited from getting jobs, from getting uh, uh, housing, um, and from getting student loans. So for those individuals who are arrested, spend the night in jail, it's a waste of complete resources. Um, for those who are convicted, unfortunately, their lives are—tend uh, to go on a downward spiral uh, because of this con conviction, which unfortunately prohibits them from um, getting a job and or entering into the middle class. So it's, uh, econo it's economic development, obviously. We need to invest in communities um, that uh, have not received their fair share of funding. It's uh, criminal justice reform. We need to reduce the number of individuals who are on Rikers Island for relative—for low-level of marijuana, nonviolent offenses, um, and we need to divert those cases from our criminal justice system. And lastly, we need to uh, make sure that young men who make mistakes, young men and women who make mistakes, their lives, they can go on to become successful members of the middle class in the city of New York and the state of New York. Another issue you've been public on recently, and longer than that, is child care in the city. Yeah. You have a proposal for a pilot program. Talk a little bit about that. So the pilot program is basically to offer municipal child care for all workers in the city of New York. Uh, we're looking at the cost. We're looking at placement. Uh, obviously, you know that child care is very expensive in the city. Um, on average, it costs between fifteen to twenty thousand. Uh, for New Yorkers to get adequate child care. And so what we want to do is provide child care for municipal workers in New York City at their work site. And so we are looking—this is a, a pilot program that we want to analyze. The legislation is currently before the City Council, and I hope that they move the bill. Do you think—and this might be getting a little too far ahead of ourselves—but is this something that eventually would be expanded to people who don't work for the city? I mean, the needs are obviously bigger than the city's workforce. The needs are greater. And as a progressive city, we obviously need to provide for the middle class and for all of those who are struggling to make ends meet. And so if this pilot program works, we should extend it to all New Yorkers and offer them affordable child care in the city of New York, if not free. 
Recently, uh, a big story in Brooklyn throughout the city has been NYCHA and the concerns expressed by a lot of people, including the governor. The governor's recent emergency declaration imposing an emergency manager over NYCHA. Yeah. There was some question about whether some of the officials who stood with him at that announcement, including you, yeah. had a chance to see the order before you supported it. Did you have a chance to read it beforehand? No, I did not have a chance to read the order. However, uh, what I do know is I saw um, the investment in dollars. And so I'm happy that the governor of the state of New York has stepped forward and put forth millions of dollars to address the capital needs of NYCHA. Right now, their capital needs um, total to about billions and billions of dollars. Uh, the amount of money uh, that uh, the governor and the state of New York is investing as NYCHA is um, welcome news. Um, $200 million, uh, upwards to $500 million, will go to fix the boilers, uh, to fix the elevators, uh, to fix lead, to fix mold. That is why I was with the governor of the state of New York at his announcement. It's all about resources for residents who total around 500 individuals in the city of New York, who unfortunately the federal government has walked away from. Um, and so the city and the state is stepping up. Now, the governor has imposed a monitor, that is true, and that monitor will be paid by city dollars and not state and that really is the crux of the issue. But the bottom line is, is that the state and the city are both stepping up to address um, this much-needed um, uh, funding um, for residents and public housing. NYCHA really is the affordable public, affordable housing in the city of New York for individuals who, on average, earn around twenty to thirty thousand dollars. Do you think it's going to fall to the city ultimately to make up for the federal government walking away from public housing? Well, I'm hoping that there'll be a change in our federal government coming soon, and I'm, I'm hoping that at some point in time there'll be some more cooperation from the federal government on issues that were once under the jurisdiction of the federal government, such as NYCHA. Um, NYCHA was funded by the federal government. They walked away from it some time ago as a result of this divestment. It's fallen upon uh, the responsibility of the state and the city of New York. Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio have stepped up um, and provided some much-needed resources. This was the winter of hell for residents of public housing. Um, and residents of public housing, as you know, um, unfortunately, a lot of their units uh, have mold and have lead, have rodents. Uh, they don't have paint jobs. Elevators don't work. They're living in conditions which are horrific, and uh, they pay their rent and their citizens of these United States, and they deserve better. Um, and we would hope uh, that the federal government, um, at some point in the future, uh, would step up and provide them with additional resources. Now, I want to say that I've been advised by some of my colleagues in the federal government and Congress that, in fact, um, HUD's budget does provide for uh, NYCHA, but it's just not enough. And it's not to the same level uh, of funding as they have done in the past. And so I'm hoping um, when the blue wave comes in, um, hopefully we'll get um, someone at HUD who understands uh, the problems and the issues of public housing and invest in those housing developments uh, for those residents who desperately need it. Speaking of Governor Cuomo, he has a primary opponent who now has the endorsement of the or the ballot line of the Working Families Party. Yeah. That, of course, is the party that helped you win public office in 2003. Uh, what do you think about the WFP's decision to endorse Cynthia Nixon, and how do you feel you might come down in that race? So I haven't made a decision at, as of this point. I've worked with Governor Cuomo on a wide range of issues. I recently, again, stood with him on, on uh, Vital Brooklyn, where he is investing resources in our uh, in our public health system, in our hospitals. Um, and in addition to that, he's building affordable housing all throughout central Brooklyn um, in neighborhoods, unfortunately, um, that have not received their um, fair share of funding from the state government.
limit 200 units of afford to excuse me uh, 2,000 units of affordable housing for individuals who earn between 20 and 30,000 dollars that is welcome news and it was an honor and a privilege to introduce the governor at that event in addition to that I've worked with the, the governor on a, a number of issues from child care uh, to NYCHA um, and so it's been an honor and a privilege to work with the governor saying all of that um, I believe democracy I believe primaries are good for our democracy and Cynthia Nixon um, um, I know her um, obviously from all that she has done with respect to public education and so um, I have not made my decision but I can tell you um, thus far um, that um, I applaud the work of Governor Cuomo and I particularly applaud him um, on behalf of those residents um, who live on Puerto Rico which is our sixth borough um, he's done a lot uh, to address the needs of the residents of Puerto Rico and um, those uh, residents um, who were suffering um, after um, uh, a number of storms and hurricanes that we faced here, Irene, et cetera, here in New York City. Speaking of elections, yeah. uh, in March, uh, I received an email from Tish 2021 uh, <laughs> asking us to, uh, to join you. And you quoted Toni Morrison. You said, a quote from her, if there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been written, you must write it. So what's the book that you're writing for our next municipal election? What that are you the best is yet to come. But right now, um, my number one focus is on the Office of Public Advocate, um, standing up on behalf of residents in the city of New York from all walks of life, um, traveling all throughout the five boroughs, speaking to residents about their needs, including those in Queens um, and parts of Brooklyn who feel that government is not relating to them and government has ignored them. It's really critically important that we all bring everyone together and that we speak with one voice. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, to put it another way, how, how likely are you to run for mayor? I think at this point in time, we, again, uh, are looking day to day um, at the Office of Public Advocate, and we'll see what the future holds. Uh, but I do know um, that the, the future looks bright in the city of New York, but I do believe that there is a disconnect in the city of New York, and what we really need to do is focus on delivering services to the residents of New York City. There's no uh, right and wrong way, no Republican or Democratic way um, to serve individuals uh, um, and uh, to deal with issues such as potholes and making sure your garbage is picked up and uh, providing child care and making sure that we, we have reduced classroom size. These are issues that New Yorkers care about and as a public advocate of the city of New York, my office has been in the forefront of a wide range of issues and we served every constituency regardless of political affiliation and that's what more politicians should do. Check your egos at the door and just get the job done. A few minutes left, or a minute and a half or so left. Quick question about the city budget, yeah. or budget season now. Mm -hmm. You and I have talked before about the city's property tax system yes. and some of the flaws in it. There's been some disappointment, I guess, that the mayor didn't address that in the budget. Are you hearing anything behind the scenes about a different way of approaching that, or is that just off the table this year? So I don't know whether or not um, the mayor of the city of New York has convened a task force to work on property tax, but clearly property tax needs reform in the state of New York. It is a state issue, but we need to analyze it, and unfortunately, it's the third rail of politics. Too many individuals are losing their homes as a result of an increased property tax rate. Too many senior citizens can't afford to pay their property tax. Uh, property tax does not make sense from one block to the next, from one borough to the next. And so we really need to examine property tax for Brownstone, Brooklyn, for all of the city of New York, for co-ops, for condos, for one, two, and three-family homes. That's what we really need to do. And it's an issue uh, that the mayor of the city of New York has indicated um, that he would like to do. I look forward to working with him uh, to put forth uh, a recommendation and submit it to the state legislature for consideration. Public Advocate Letitia James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
Brooklyn Bridge Park has blossomed before our eyes. Industrial ruins turned into upscale stores, a carousel, a sculpture park, fields, bike paths, and gardens. It all started decades ago and was informed by a collective of citizens turned advocates for a space that could be enjoyed by Brooklynites and beyond. They're the Brooklyn Bridge Park Conservancy, and Ashley spoke with the executive director, Nancy Webster, about the history and the future of this transformed space. Here's that conversation. Nancy, tell us about the Conservancy. What it is it? Uh, what plans do you guys have this summer? What's going on? Uh, look forward. To, so, first of all, thanks, Ashley, for having me in today I'm to, so happy uh, to have you. talk about Brooklyn Bridge Park and the work that the Conservancy does in mm -hmm. the in the park. Uh, we got our start as citizen advocates for the park, and mm -hmm. then uh, you know, as the park was funded and uh, started being built, uh, moved into doing uh, free public programming uh, in the park. So over the course of the season, which which uh, starts this Saturday and it's going to be going through the end of October, uh, we do over around 500 free events and activities uh, for visitors to come to the park and enjoy, and that's in the cultural, recreational, and educational spaces. It sounds fantastic. I mean, it's a really incredible space. It's amazing. I love the waterfront. Thank you for that. Tell Thank me, you. how is it being developed? Well. Um, uh, as you uh, as you as you might know, uh, the park is has been being built in, in stages. The mm -hmm. first sections opened in uh, 2010, and by the end of the summer, the park is going to be about 90 percent complete. Wow! So it's it's very very exciting, you know, especially for those folks who have been uh, involved in the story of Brooklyn Bridge Park for many many years. Which seems like quite a few people at this point. Yes. And you actually co-authored a book called A History of Brooklyn Bridge Park, How a Community Reclaimed and Transformed New York City's Waterfront, which is a fantastic title, published by Columbia University Press. What were some of the interesting factoids you learned just in the writing and researching of a book like this? Well, I think you, you know, you you you, you learn like how is a community movement effective? Mm -hmm. You know, it's effective by uh, energizing and and employing different kinds of people, like you need the you need the people who are, are like dogged advocates and won't take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. But then you also need to transition into the people who know how to build uh, uh, coalitions and know how to compromise. So for me, the most interesting story about the park was that sort of tapestry of different personalities. Mm -hmm. You know, different people bringing different gifts and sensibilities to create a movement you know, that could really sustain itself over 20 and 30 years. Which it has, which sounds fantastic to me. Talk to me a little bit more about the Peer Number Project. I'm assuming you're, you're talking about uh, the newest pier in yes. Brooklyn Bridge Park that's going to be opening, uh, uh, Pier 3. Um, pier 3 is right in the middle of uh, the piers section of, of Brooklyn Bridge Park, which extends, say, from the Brooklyn Bridge to Atlantic Avenue. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pier 3 is going to feature uh, a large uh, lawn for passive recreation, hanging out, picnicking, sunbathing. Almost like a college quad, it sounds like. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, there's going to be a hardscaped area uh, on the end for smaller uh, uh, smaller scale programming events, learning mm -hmm. how to ride a bike, and a really interesting uh, uh, labyrinth um, on the north side of the pier that uses some of the park's marine infrastructure and that has uh, different pieces of play equipment that children might mm -hmm. enjoy. 
it sounds like there's a lot of time and resources, you know, and money being put into this project, which is lovely. Are people using it? Are people coming through and really enjoying the space? Yeah, you know, uh, for, for sure, you know, mm -hmm. and, and millions of, of folks come to Brooklyn Bridge Park uh, over the course of the year. I mean, if you're, if you're out in the park on the weekend, uh, on a, a warm day in the mm -hmm. spring, like we're going to have uh, uh, this weekend, you know, you see a, a, a panoply of folks from all across the city who mm -hmm. are coming in and enjoying the park. That sounds lovely. We learned you love fishing and sailing. Yes. You personally well, love yes, fishing Well, yes, I do, actually. So for enthusiasts like you, what inspires you to do the work you do? And how does it feel to look over the past 20 years and the work that you've personally put into this project to see it coming to a place of almost like 90% complete by the end of summer? Well, I, I mean, I just feel like one of the luckiest people in New York City to have the opportunity to be able to work on a project that is, like, so personally meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. um, I experience joy every day going into the office, going to the park space, and seeing, you know, sort of not only the amazing amenity that is Brooklyn Bridge Park, the amazing views it affords you uh, over New York Harbor, but just walking through the park and seeing people just having a wonderful, wonderful time. Any events coming up that we should be aware of? Yeah, you know, we're kicking off our season uh, this Saturday, May the 5th, mm -hmm. at noon, uh, with a, uh, a festival called Liftoff. It's mm -hmm. a kite festival. Um, and, you know, we were, when we were doing some thinking about how we wanted to kick off our season, um, mm -hmm. you know, we do a lot of environmental education work in the park, and so we focus on the water a lot right. and teaching kids uh, uh, about the East River and the, and the estuary. Uh, we focus on the land of the park a lot, you know, the trees, the plants, the animals, the insects that live on the park. And we decided, you know, we need—let's focus on the air and right. take a look at um, uh, how—take a look at, at how air makes things move, how air affects the environment. So right. with our uh, kite festival, it's going to be a STEM and STEAM-oriented festival. So not only will you be able to, like, bring your kite down and fly it, you know, in the middle with, like, hundreds of other folks who are excited right. about kites, you know, we're working with great partners like Brooklyn Robot Foundry, Brooklyn Children's Museum, wow. STEM NYC, Nori, GenSpace. We're going to attach Petri dishes to kites and send them up in the air to capture, to study the air's biome and explore what's in the air that we breathe. We're going to build uh, many parachutes to help kids learn about lift and drag mm -hmm. and how air moves things. Um, it's going to be a, a content-rich and fun day of exploring air and playing with kites. So this Saturday, May 5th, noon to 2.30. That sounds fantastic. Nancy, thank you again for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time and for all the work you've done on the waterfront. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. And please come visit us in the park. Oh, I will. Thanks for joining us today. Ashley will be back tomorrow to speak with a local climate scientist about anthropogenic climate change. That means caused by me and you. In case there are remaining doubts, she'll explain how we know it's real. Plus, tips for having a Brooklyn-based wedding. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford. 
and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.